So let's open with a word of prayer for the mission of the church. Let us pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, you manifested your love by sending your only begotten Son into the world that all might live through him. Pour out your Spirit on your church that we may fulfill his command to preach the gospel to all people. Send forth laborers into your harvest, defend them in all dangers and temptations, and hasten the time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in, and faithful Israel shall be saved. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you mind? Yeah, grab the doors. No, we'll just leave all the backsliders out there to do whatever they do. We don't really use that term. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of, how does normal feel? I mean, I have so missed this. Um, What, it's been a year since we've been able to meet in person and exchange the word in this sort of way, and I've been really, really excited to to get back to this. And um, just by way of a quick announcement, you'll see in your chairs um, a couple of new cards. I'll announce these again in church. These are the cards that have the life groups and the... um, mission and ministry opportunities in them. So uh, I invited Ann Allen to church this morning so we could give her a round of applause and thanks for her hard work. Um, Thank you, Ann, for doing a great job on this. If you saw smoke rising in Southwest Fort Worth, that was because of the aggressive negotiations that she and I were having about the final details um, about all of this. Oh, there were lightsabers. I didn't have the cool double-sided one of, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to waste too much time on that if we go much further. The book of Revelation, um, whether or not you've studied this book before, we all have questions about it. I'm sure I have questions about it. It is not easy to get our minds around uh, a correct understanding of this book. So I, th- I thought what we do instead of um, a Bible study is I'm just going to show this movie series starring Kirk Cameron and... if. No, anybody catching? Sorry, no, we won't do that. Um, sorry. Um, there was a there was this movie series. What was the guy Tim LaHaye? What was this? Is it Tim LaHaye? Yeah, who um, may, took a shot at uh, interpreting the Book of Revelations in very fantastical ways. Left behind. That was it. The the book and movie series. So I'm I'm sort of tongue in cheeking my way through this here. Um, it's not that they were wrong from the point of view that, that you know, <laughs> there is a heaven and there is a hell and, and there is an end of time as we know it. It's just maybe some other things were, were a little bit uh, different than we might get about how we would approach the book. So what I want to say um, this morning, and this morning is all uh, background type of, of work in preparation for understanding the book of Revelation as best we can, because as we know, text without context is a pretext, and we don't want to go there. Um, We want to keep this book in its context as as best we're able. So what I want to say at the onset is that we are about to enter into a world that at once is both vastly different and yet strangely similar to the world that we live in today. Let's think about it politically up front. Um, Politically, we live in a what? A democracy, right? Well... Okay, however y'all want to split the baby, however y'all want to split the baby there. Um, Contrast whatever you think about our current state of government with Rome. Rome was a what? Yeah, it was an empire, but but basically a a dictatorship. To to the point where the, the Caesar 
And this is a significant change in, in how Rome thought about its own government. Through the time of Augustus, there was a, there was a deification of the emperor that would take place, um, but it was after his death, right? And, and more and more in the time after Augustus, the, the emperor, the Caesar, was attributing to himself a, a deification on earth, accruing more authority and power to himself, if you will. Um, you, you might think of a, a crude example as someone like Kim Jong-un, right, in, in North Korea, where, where um, I just learned this the other day. Um, I don't know if they're required to say this, but a common term for him is loving father, uh, which is just a very interesting idea um, and, and nothing like our loving father that we know in, in heaven, let alone any of other our political figures, but I don't want to wade into those waters too deeply. Religiously, Rome was what? Pagan, polytheistic, and there I am. And, and from a political point of view, generally speaking, they were, they were pluralistic, Right? You could, you could profess an, another religion as, as long as it didn't upset the way of living in, in the Roman Empire. Now, that would have its challenges as we would see over time, and we're going to get into that. Um, culturally, not dissimilarly now from America, uh, in some senses, it was barbaric with an element of, of civility about it, Right. Um, and all of this was under the banner of what we would call, you've heard this phrase, I'm sure, Pax Romana, which means what? The peace of Rome, the peace of Rome. And this peace of Rome that people like to talk about really has an element of truth to it. It is a season unlike any other that the world had seen where the protection of a very powerful military afforded growth and prosperity, prosperity both socially and economically, there was a great opportunity for education if you were certainly of, of a class that could achieve that. But as we also know, an unmatched social infrastructure, right? We, we know about the, the roads um, that, that Rome built among the many you know, beautiful buildings that are there and, and other things, whatnot. So all of this was achievable because of, of what they called the Peace of Rome or Pax Romana. Now, Christ, of course, lived during the growth of all of this, right? He died in AD 33, and there's been a little bit of adjustment over time of, of, in history about exactly when he was born and, and died, and, and we won't dive into that, but suffice it to say, he had lived during this time. But at the time of the book of Revelation, and we'll get into the dating of it in just a minute, um, he, had, he had been ascended into heaven for approximately 50 years or so, right? Um, because the book of Revelation was written later in time, and, and again, we'll get to that in just a minute. But the important part about that is Christ had ascended into heaven, and the gospel was now advancing around the Mediterranean rim. So I'll, I'll, um, are we all done with the heaven and hell scene? I'll call up a map here that shows the spread of Christianity by, um, from the time of Jesus to about AD 200, 200 is beyond the scope of where we're going to go. We're going to settle into 80 to 120 time range. And, and you can see um, important cities are, are these that are marked by the white box. Um, I didn't have too much to drink tonight. I'm just not good at stabilizing this thing. Um, the cities that were visited by St. Paul have the red cross in them uh, like these. Um, the seven churches of, of Asia that's going to be a particular focus in the book of Revelation are found here. 
and um, the persecution of Christians with, with different dates, you can see by these uh, this sort of flame um, areas where Christians were persecuted, and then Christian presence in, is, is what's marked in green. So that's, that's a little bit of a geographical look at the spread of Christianity up to the time of 200. Again, we'll be in the time of 80 to 120 or so. And, and as the gospel was advancing around the rim of the Mediterranean Sea, we know that significant figures obviously participated in that, the disciples, the apostles, but in particular, we know Paul had, um, was, was martyred in Rome. Peter was martyred in Rome as tradition holds. So the, the two of the greatest apostles that we know were both martyred in Rome. And we can also enter in now to the apostle John who had been exiled to the island of Patmos, which is right here off of the eastern coast of Greece. We did not get to visit it, but hopefully we'll get to visit it. By the way, um, this Imagine Travel tour group that we're going to England with also does a Missionary Journeys of Paul. So my hope is that the next time we go after this time, we'll go on the Missionary Journeys of Paul and then we'll, we'll continue the cycle. We'll go back to Israel and, and keep looping around. Um, so anyway, that would be an interesting journey for us as well. But there's, there's Patmos in relationship to Rome, right? Um, to, to get our bearings on, on what we're talking about. So the Apostle John later in life had been exiled to the island of Patmos. And with that context, that background in mind, we can talk about what we want to cover this morning. And I have to get all the way through this because I've asked David Roseberry next week to do Revelation chapter one. So um, we're going to get on the speed train here just a little bit. Um, so let's talk about the name of the book itself. If you'll open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Um, Revelation chapter 1. And, and I am using mostly an ESV study Bible. Now what's in your pews is an ESV tiny print Bible. Um, they, they didn't call it that, but that's, that's what it is. Um, but the English, English Standard Version um, of the book of Revelation is, is what I'm, I'm working out of. And here we are, the very first words of the book, chapter one, verse one, say what? If you can read the tiny print version. The, the revelation or the apocalypse, that big scary word. So, so revelation, uh, apocalypse, strictly speaking, and, and this is good to hold to this understanding, means unfolding, right? Or unveiling or revealing, revelation, right? It is as it sounds like it is. Making something known that was previously unknown. Something is about to be revealed that hadn't yet been known and, and now we're making it known. And we'll see in John chapter one as y'all explore that further from a different point of view, that, that it's John who's making it known through the angel. And, and again, that'll be more next week. But just to set the stage, that's, what, um, that's where the book gets its name. That's what the name of the book means. And it is the only apocalyptic book in the New Testament canon from the point of view that, that it deals with things to come, right? There's a sense in which we have to say, all books of the New Testament are revelatory, but the book of Revelation itself or the apocalypse holds a unique place in the type of revelation. So let me explain a little bit about that. The gospels, of course, are revelatory, but principally focus on what? Yeah, the person and work of Jesus in his time of life, death, and resurrection. Now, there are certainly some eschatological, meaning, meaning, 
things to come types of passages that are in the gospels, right? Jesus talks about the great judgment to come, especially in the book of Matthew. So there is a futuristic tone present, particularly in the book of Matthew, that's not as much present in the other gospels, but suffice it to say it's there. But the, but the primary purpose of, of the revelatory work in the gospels is the person and work of Jesus during his earthly life and ministry, fair to say. Then we get to the epistles, and the epistles are revelatory as well, but what do they mostly focus on? Yeah, what do we do now? The, the, the so what, right? In light of who Jesus is, as he manifests himself during his earthly life and ministry, now that he is ascended into heaven, so what? How then are we supposed to live? Now, there is a fantastic exception to this. Um, and, and if you look at 1 Thessalonians, about halfway through the New Testament there, and believed to be one of the earliest books written, if not the earliest book written, and, and so you'll see why this comes to light. Uh, if and as 1 Thessalonians was one of Paul's first letters to the churches, you can see then why he talks about the coming of the day of the Lord. So if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we can see this little apocalyptic type of, of writing laid into this epistle. Because what? He doesn't know when he's going to die. He's not sure when Jesus is going to come back. And he wants to make sure the Christians in Thessalonica are not uninformed. And so that's how he begins in verse 13 of chapter four. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Who's asleep? Not nobody here, I don't think. It's a metaphor for what? Death, right? We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another with these words. I'm not gonna interpret all of that for us today, but just to give you a sense that that epistle in particular has a futuristic element in, in terms of eschaton, those things that are part of the end times, those things that are yet to come, like the book of Revelation that we're studying now. So the book of Revelation, as I said a minute ago, is the only one whose general theme has futuristic types of elements. And we even have to be careful with that too, as we'll get into. You know, it certainly talks about end times, but, but there is a futuristic sense in which it had to speak to the audience of that time about things that were to come. So that's where we really have to be careful about how we interpret, and I'll talk about interpretation in just a minute. But back to Revelation itself, because it is apocalyptic in nature, it has similarities to and draws from elements of Old Testament books such as Daniel, Ezekiel, even Isaiah, and the Psalms in the Old Testament, right? There, there are elements of apocalyptic writings in those books of the Old Testament. In fact, Revelation draws on some of that imagery as we'll see as we get deeper into the study. So 
fair enough so far as, as in terms of general landscape, just in terms of identifying the, the literary type at a basic level of what this book is. Let's get into authorship and dating. Um, so there's been some debate over time about whether or not this book was written by the Apostle John himself. So we're gonna go off into the scholarship weeds here for just a minute, but some of you really like that. The rest of you can sip your coffee and come back when we get to other things. But let's look at verses one through four and, and talk about the authorship of the book of Revelation. Verses, uh, Revelation chapter one, verses one through four, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So that's where we have to get careful a little bit about futuristic, right? Must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Well, here's where some of the debate has, has occurred around specifically identifying the author as the Apostle John. He never identifies himself specifically as the Apostle John, right? We, we gotta get a pretty good sense that it probably is the Apostle John by the context of what's going on, but it doesn't specifically say, I, the Apostle John, who was with Jesus, you know, the last guy at the foot of the cross, although that's, that's not explicitly stated in there. And, and, and so that's, that's a fair-minded thought because you know, we have to scrutinize the text and make sure that what we have is authentic. So we'll, we'll do a little bit of historical landscaping in that way. Um, so it doesn't specifically say that it is the apostle, but here comes the external evidence for authorship, right? If this is the internal evidence, what's in the book, we would classify as internal evidence. External evidence comes to us from the church fathers. So you've heard these names, I'm sure. Justin Martyr, um, as early as 150 AD, is the first one to declare that it is the Apostle John. So that's within 80 years or so of his writing the book. We have one of the church fathers. Irenaeus, another church father coming along 30 years after, was the first to say that John wrote both Revelation and the fourth gospel. And then this book is widely accepted as scripture by the, by the second half of the second century. So whereas we have these challenges to whether or not it was specifically the apostle John, uh, what we have in response are some things that pertain to the, the dating of the book, which help us get to, and, and the tradition of, of testimony about it being the apostle John that land us with, with more certainty that, that John and the community of John wrote it. So let's, let's do a little bit of dating. The date of writing is um, John is, himself is, to, is believed to have died around AD 95. Um, Irenaeus says that the book of Revelation was written before the end of Domitian's reign, Domitian being the, president, the Roman emperor at that time, and he died in AD 96. So these things would suggest that John wrote the book. Um, but there are some things in there that create challenges, as I said, in terms of use of phrases and words and, and, and things like that, that at least raise the question about whether or not John himself wrote it. Well, all that, all that we can say about that is it's certainly not enough to discredit Johannan authorship. And even if there are words and phrases that may have nuances of meanings and uses, however subtle they may be, there are some answers that, that are very reasonable in terms of how we wanna talk about authorship that pertain to uh, not a couple of the books, but, but a couple of the gospels in, in particular and the book of John. And what I mean by that is this. 
this book may indeed have been written exclusively by the apostle John himself, right? That's, that's certainly plausible. It also may have been written in part by the apostle John and in part by scribes who were writing down things that he said. For example, a great, um, a, a great illustration of that is the gospel of, of Mark. It's largely believed that Mark was writing based on things that he was hearing Peter say and, and putting them down and organizing them into a fashion that made sense that, that became one of the four gospels, Mark not being one of the 12 apostles himself, right? So that's a reasonable way to approach authorship. It may have been assembled and written by John's disciples. In other words, maybe John wrote a bunch of notes that then after his death, his community of disciples came together and organized it based on his teaching, what they had heard him say, and based on the writings that they were either able to gather together and, and assemble. And at the end of the day, this book was accepted as scripture by the second half of the second century, as I said. It's fully accepted into the final canon of scripture. And here's the point about that. Whether or not John wrote any of it, some of it, or all of it, we can certainly say it is of John, and more especially, we can say that it is absolutely a part of the canon of scripture. We have that, and there's some criteria for establishing the canon of scripture that, that let us know which books made it in and which books were not going to make it in. These things include um, written by one of the apostles, including Paul himself, for example, or that it is apostolic in nature. So as I said earlier, Mark was not an apostle, Luke was not an apostle, right? But the books they wrote are apostolic in nature. So that was a reason that those books were included um, in the canon of scripture. And also, uh, is the book faithful to previously accepted canonical writings, like the Old Testament, like other New Testament writings. And finally, what we talk about Catholicity, that is to say of the whole. These letters in particular, but not only these letters, other letters, other epistles were circulated among the various churches. And within those churches, there became a consensus among those churches that the book met the above criteria. I mean, we have to go back into the New Testament world here and remember that the only Bible they had as they were living was what? It was the Old Testament. They didn't fully have the New Testament the printing press was nowhere to be found for generations of time, as we know. And so what were they, how were they primarily receiving the faith at that time? Word of mouth, right? Through the bishops and the priests and the deacons and the laity and the, and the continued encouragement among the community about the nature of the gospel. So it wasn't like today when we have the Old Testament, the Psalm, the New Testament, the gospel, we process it out, and then Charles or I preach on those particular texts. They were, they were preaching largely on the living tradition of the church, and, and, and so there was an interplay between the living tradition of the church and these letters that were being written that allowed the community of the faithful to say, yes, this sounds like what we've heard. No, this doesn't sound like what we heard. And finally, all of these things were codified at a synod um, we call the Synod of Carthage in AD 397. So it really wasn't until 400 years later that we had the final canon of, of scripture codified at this synod. And this is what we have. And what we don't have is what we don't have. And we've all heard the modern books about Thomas and our movies and things like that. Those books will never be part of the canon of scripture. It doesn't matter how old they are 
or relatively authentic they may be in terms of who may have written them, there are elements of those books that do not fit the narrative of scripture as we have received it, so they're, they're disqualified from the canon of scripture. So that's a big mouthful, but hopefully it helps settle how this book came to be in terms of inclusion in the canon and, and the relative ways that, that we can get at the idea of authorship. Any questions or comments about that? Wow, all right, I guess I did a pretty good job. Oh, thank you. So we'll go a little bit more into the weeds and the stuff that y'all probably care about the most in terms of this because the, the dating informs the purpose, right? The dating informs the purpose, and let's talk about that a little bit. When Jesus, now let's go back to the time of the crucifixion, not the resurrection, the crucifixion. When Jesus died, what do you think the disposition of the apostles was? Scared and what now, right? What now, let's be more specific than that. Doubtful. Our leader's dead, sad, discouraged. How about that's it? How about that's it, right? If you take out the leader, what, what do you have left? In their minds, you have to know that they believe that when Christ was crucified, it was over. Because if death can take out the guy who's done all these signs and wonders, then, then death wins, and we go on with that reality. Andrew? Well, I, I think another element, too, is Judaism and Christianity both, it, it seems very absolute. Like, right? It's all over. I mean, all over. Like, I don't, I don't know that we have an all over in our minds in that sort of way, partly because the good news is we live with the hope of the resurrection, so we know there's not an all over. But if there were an all over moment in human history, this had to be it. That's it. And now we're probably going to lose our lives as a result of following this Jewish rebel rouser. So how could the Messiah die, right? That's the other part of this. How could God's Messiah die? All of the Old Testament suggested that he doesn't die, he wins. And not only does he win, the implications of his victory are that we, we kick the Roman Empire out of Israel and, and Israel runs the show now. I mean, those are, those are the other kinds of implications for this. And so what now does this say about God? I mean, these are, these are powerful questions that rested in their mind in those couple of days between crucifixion and resurrection. So as we know, Jesus' resurrection changes everything, but now let's put that in a different context because we have the book of John, and if we go to the end of John, there's not a whole lot of what next, right? There's the resurrection, there's the restoration of Peter is the prince of the apostles. There's this little jostling about Peter and John and who's going to live and who's going to die and what does it matter to you? Just do what I told you to do kind of dialogue going on. But there's nothing that carries that forward. So not unlike 
Luke writes the gospel and then he writes Acts to say this is what's going on next in the life of the church. Now John, under the inspiration of, of the angel who mediates this message to him, gives a very futuristic look of things to come. And it becomes very and very important because as we said earlier, as the church grew and began to face persecution, especially from the Roman Empire, Revelation begins to address the needs and concerns of that emerging Christian community, right? It's not just written for the end of times, it's written for those people at that time. And part of the reason that it's difficult for us to understand is that it's cryptic. We know that. Why would it have been cryptic? Yeah, think about the persecution, right? They're trying to slip stuff under their nose in, in ways that, they're, okay, this is ridiculous, I can't understand it, it must be harmless, so we'll just go, move, move along, right? That kind of idea would have been present in, in the minds of, of those who were interacting. So as the church grew and faced persecution, they started writing. John writes from the island of Patmos, as we saw, and, and he begins to unfold his purpose. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. And again, we'll go back over this next week with Father Roseberry. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So back up and, and there are these mm, churches to whom it was circulated, these blue a circulatory letter to encourage the Christians. Now, again, the church fathers attest to John's writing of this epistle during the reign of Domitian, and that would fit the tenor and tone of the letter. It also helps to explain other particular texts. So let's go to Revelation 17 and, and just get a sense of what I mean in saying that this letter is being written to encourage the Christians of that time and not just futuristic or, or fantastical type of writing. Revelation 17, verses 9 through 11. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So if we, if we keep in mind that this book was being written to a group of Christians at a particular time and particular place for a particular purpose, we can begin to unpack the context of verses like that and identify the Roman emperors that were being talked about at that period of time. And so you, now you can see some of the cryptic language being written. In, in that sort of way. So it also speaks to emperor worship, ver chapters, verses 13 through 15. Uh, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw and the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So he's, he's writing, again, for a particular purpose at that time. 
This emperor worship, as we said earlier, um, at the time of Augustus, you know, they assigned deity after the Caesar had died. Now it was more being ascribed during life and explicitly under Domitian. We, we, we're not 100% positive, but we're fairly confident that he's the first emperor who explicitly said, I am a God here on this earth ruling and, and reigning um, over you people. <laughs> Okay, um, let's talk about types of literature and we'll get to the end here. When we talk about types of literature, we're talking about a, a landscape of interpretation and how to rightly understand the book of Revelation. And it's important to say that when we talk about interpretation, what we're saying by that word is what the author meant to say. Application is what we do with it in our lives. But when we talk about interpreting the Bible, we're, we're not primarily saying, what does it mean to me? We're primarily saying, what was John trying to say when he wrote the book? And that interpretation then has application that helps me know how to live, but it's not just me, it's the whole of the Christian community, right? It's never just my Bible and me, it's the church. The book was written by the church, given to the church, for the church. So the types of literature that we can talk about in the book of Revelation first is prophecy. We know that. Prophecy is a <clears throat> foretelling. It has a sense of revealing things that are futuristic. But it's also a foretelling, things that are in the now. If we think about the prophets of the Old Testament, their primary job was to call Israel back to the law and back to covenant faithfulness. Was there some element of looking ahead? Sure, but the primary purpose of prophecy was to call people back, a foretelling of what's going on right now. So prophecy is a primary literary device that this book uses. Secondly, as we've said, apocalyptic. Now let me give another nuance of meaning to apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, as I said at the beginning, means revelatory, making things unknown that were previously unknown. Another connotation of apocalyptic is the use of signs and symbols that are pointing to a deeper meaning. It can be in the past, they can be now in the present, and they can also be in the future. An apocalyptic type of sign is the cross, right? It's revealing something to us about something that happened in the past. That's an apocalyptic type of sign. In the book of Revelation, there are other apocalyptic ideas. When we hear stars talked about, for, for example, that's referring to angels, and John will make that clear. Uh, Lampstands will refer to churches. We'll see that in Revelation 1.20. See, David gets to do all the good stuff next week. I've got to do the deep digging, deep digging of the background. So we have prof prophetic literature and we have apocalyptic literature, the two primary features in this text. And then some final things for us to remember. So let me, let me pause and see if there are any more questions or comments before I try to get us to the home plate. Final thoughts. We have to acknowledge that the span of time does certainly create difficulties in interpretation. That seems obvious. We, we have to allow for that. That, that we live 2,000 years after the fact and we can't possibly fully step back into that cultural context and and know and understand everything that was going on in that time, let alone how they would have been processing what they were receiving when John wrote this book. Again, 
we still have to remember in light of that that this book was written to a specific audience for a specific purpose. And, and I can't emphasize that enough because this is the places where, as we jokingly talked about earlier, what's, what's the movie series, the book series? Left Behind, right? People can go way off into the weeds in these fantastical, terrifying interpretations of things that can take us into places of fear and off the rails. Now, is there an element of fear and trepidation in the judgment of the Lord? 100%. But the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is not to put us in a place of fear, but to call us to faith in Jesus Christ, right? As I said in the very beginning, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, his triumph, his victory, and the final things to come. So we'll see that as we read all the way through the book, especially in the last couple of chapters. It's a glorious picture and, and painting of things to come. You know, I saw this new heaven and this new earth, and there's a place where there's no more pain and no more tears and, and no more crying, and, and all of the bad things have passed away. I mean, it's a glorious finale to the book. So our job in this exercise is to be as faithful as we can to the context of the book so that we can understand the text and avoid as much sensationalism as we can. Can we know exactly when the world will end? We can't. Of course we can't. We look back in human history and, and how many times have people said through the great wars of antiquity, that's it. We're done. This is a world war. Jesus has to come back, right? That's not an unfair thought. It's just that we don't have that predictive power in us to say, yep, that's it. We can't know when it will end. We can't know exactly how it will end. We know that Jesus will be triumphant, but we can't know all of the particulars of exactly how. Paul talks about being caught up in the air, and some people have interpreted that text to mean, okay, we get our golden ticket and we're on the glory train and off we go. What we have to remember in light of that, and, and this is where we have to allow scripture to interpret scripture, is that in the book of Revelation, there is a rejoining of heaven and earth, right? So that we're not suspended <laughs> in the clouds like we're trapped in between one place and the other, hanging out with Jesus with our harps and our wings. No, that book is meant to say we are elevated out of the sin and death of this world and we are reigning over it, right? That's the sense that Paul's trying to communicate in 1 Thessalonians. And in, the, and in the context of us being lifted out of this state of sin and death, heaven and earth are being rejoined. And so we'll see in the book of Revelation this, this new Jerusalem, right, that is the city of God. If you've ever been to the chapel of St. Andrews uh, in downtown Fort Worth, Marty Norman's, I think, nephew, is that right, relative, there's a remarkable painting, one of the prettiest I've ever seen in the, in the chapel behind the altar of this new Jerusalem. It's well worth seeing if you ever have the chance to go downtown and, and check it out and just spend, I mean, I could spend hours meditating on it. You know, the, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, it's, it's glorious. So we will address these ideas of tribulation and millennialism that everybody likes to talk about and get wrapped around the axle on, and that's fine. But here's what I want us to remember. Let's go back to Acts. Acts chapter one, verses six and seven. I'm gonna have to go really quickly or Connie's gonna come screaming at me. Yep. Here we go. 
Acts chapter one, verses six and seven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's our mandate and I will leave it there, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So y'all enjoy your food and fellowship. Round of applause for Connie and putting all of that together and I'll see you in